Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. To work. Hosea chapter 2, the sermon this morning is that God is just and God is loving. God is just and God is loving. The book of Hosea is going to show this contrast, and really not a contrast, but how the love of God and the justice of God complement one another. And this chapter is so helpful because it really shows these two ideas that are scattered throughout the entire Bible in one chapter. Last week we started the book of Hosea and we looked at God's word to Israel And we looked at the prophet Hosea who was called to go and marry a prostitute, and marry a woman who had been living in that way and that was going to continue to live in that way. And he married her and betrothed her and had a first child with her. And then there were two more children that came after that. And the names of these children were representative of what God was doing with his people. God is the faithful bridegroom. The people of God are the bride. And on the big scale, God is doing something with his bride. And on the small scale, every one of us uh, our, our Gomer. Every one of us have walked, walked away. We have all turned against God, and yet God has come to us, come near, and done something for us. And today we're going to get, look at the, the love of God and the justice of God. And the Bible, this is again scattered throughout everywhere, the, the Bible is clear that God is a just God. He is just. He cares about justice and defines justice. What is right and wrong? We are not at liberty to answer the question, what is right and wrong, based on Democracy. What does the most amount of people think is right or wrong? Mob rule doesn't constitute reality. It doesn't matter what we think or what we feel. What God says is right and wrong is right and wrong. And if we feel weird about what God says is right and wrong, it's not that God is off, it's that we are off. And we should amend our thinking, we should change our thinking to get in line with what God has to say about right and wrong. God is just. And it's unbelievably clear in the Bible that God is loving. God, in fact, is said to be love. Love is not God, but God loves. I've got several verses here scattered throughout the whole Bible to reference this morning. And I want you to hear this, and then I want you to see it in plain sight in Hosea chapter 2. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4 says this, The rock, speaking of God, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. God is just and upright. Psalm 9, 9, 7, verse 7. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice and and He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. God is the judge, the highest of all judge, all judges. He is the Supreme Court of all Supreme Courts, and He is always right, and He judges the world with uprightness. Romans 3, verse 9 through 20 says, Now we all know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law is going to define right and wrong. And if there's a violation of that law, then that shows sin. The law is perfect and right. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, 
which is the second death. Hebrews 10, 30 and 31, For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It is unbelievably clear. God is just. Sinners will not go unpunished. People will not get away with sin. God will make things right. And those who get away with lawlessness and they escape the rule of law in this land or in any land across the sea or across the world, they will one day meet their Maker and they will stand and give an account. God is just and no sin will go unpunished. God is also love. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 7. Hear this. Note the contrast. That's not a conflict, but a contrast. And it complements each other. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps His covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generation. God's faithfulness rolls from generation to the next. Psalm 86.15 But you, O Lord, are a merciful God and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. John 3.16 You probably know this. Tim Tebow does. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Lest we get too familiar with what is familiar. Isn't that a great verse? For God loved the world so much that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is just, and God is loving. Both are true. And today, we see again His judgment on Israel, and we see His judgment on Israel, and then we also see His love for Israel. We're going to see, yet again, from our, our vantage point, we're going to see from our vantage point something uniquely different than what the people of God in the book of Hosea could see. We have a vantage point, an advantage point, to be able to look back and see what God, in fact, did. Go ahead and turn to Hosea 2 if you're not already there and look at verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. Now last week we ended with hope. There was judgment and then it opened up at the end of the chapter to verses about hope. The end of the story will not be judgment, which is good news for Israel. It's good news for the Israel within Israel after they've rebelled against God. God has always kept 7,000 who did not bow their knee to Baal. And the promise in the Old Testament that we looked at last week as the New Testament quotes from Hosea chapter 1 is that salvation was not just going to be for the nation of Israel, not just the ethnic bloodline of Israel. So not just the Jewish peoples by birth, but it was going to be those of faith. And the Gentiles would be included in that. There's always been one people of God. There's always been one way of salvation. And the people of God are those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some looking ahead before Christ came. And then now as we look back to Christ and there's salvation only in one name. And that name is the Lord Jesus Christ. All who belong to Him, all who are in Christ Jesus are the people of God. And if you are not in Christ Jesus, there is no hope of heaven or eternity with the Lord apart from Christ. Last week we ended with hope, promises of God's grace and His mercy in light of judgment. And one day, we have to remember about last week that one day Judah and Israel, which was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom after the split, 
from Solomon to Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the, the nation split of Israel. And so the Israel, or Israel was split to the north and Judah was down to the south. So we had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And if you remember the promise from last week, and if you weren't here with us last week, just look at Hosea chapter 1 or try to catch the sermon online, that one day Judah and Israel will all look to one head, one Savior, and that is Jesus. And by that one man, all those who would look to that one man from Judah or from Israel or any Gentile throughout the world would be saved. Now here in verse 1, in that day, in that day that's to come, the one day to come, as opposed to the moment in time that the kingdom was split, you will say to me, you are my people and you will receive mercy. Because we get this verse, say to your brothers, you are my people and you are my sisters. You have received mercy. Now, at this particular moment in time, the time that Hosea was written, we have to remember that God had said, you are not my people. And now we have in chapter 2, verse 1, you are my people and you have received mercy. But that was on the tail end of the promises of the one who had come. So in that day, they would say to each other, brother and sister, there would be a day in the future that would be bright for Israel. The love of God was going to restore the relationships between Israel to the north and Judah to the south through the blood of Christ. Now, 2,000 years later approximately, or 2,700 years later, we're now looking back at the day of Hosea, and we're looking 2,000 years back at the work of Jesus, and we see in greater clarity what they could not see. The Jew and Gentile alike are now all the Israel of God, all who are in Christ. Now look at verse 2 again, back to the present moment in Hosea. Verse 2, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Verse 3, Lest I strip her naked and make her as the day that she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land. And upon her, kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because of the children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She has conceived them and acted shamefully. In verse 2 we find now there's a little bit of a transition in the book of Hosea. And now Israel is the mother and the child is to plead with the mother. The, the relationship is now currently done because God is saying, plead with your mother, plead for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. God is saying, she's not my wife, I am not her husband. The relationship has been severed. It's currently done and there's nothing that can be fixed about it. We're going to see the justice of God. Israel has not put away her whoring. She has continued in her behavior as Gomer continued in her behavior with Hosea. Hosea married the prostitute. Her lewd behavior continued. Now Hosea, or excuse me, Israel, their bad behavior has continued in the same manner. And God is saying the relationship is now fractured. She will not put away her whoring and her rebellion. And so now I am not her husband. There's judgment coming. And there's rebellion. In, in verses 3-5 through five we just read, we're told that Israel, the northern kingdom, will be stripped and exposed. And this language, it's kind of hard to deal with because we're hearing God say that I'm going to do this. This is His justice at work. She's going to be stripped as the day she was born. He's going to make her like a wilderness, a parched land. And He's going to kill her with thirst. She's going to be thirsty. She's going to want to be satisfied. And she will not find satisfaction. And God will not give her satisfaction. 
Their judgment is coming. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. God's not going to have mercy on her or her children. There's going to be shame and there's going to be sin and there's going to be exposure everywhere because Israel, the northern kingdom, has deserved the judgment of God. And we look at these verses and at first glance, we're wondering, you know, what about God who's gracious and patient and long-suffering and who'd given promises to Israel? And we wonder where those promises and where God's grace has gone. Because in this moment, we see the vengeance of God. We see the justice of God. Sin will not go unpunished. And you're going to reap what you've sowed, Israel. You want to continue to chase other lovers? You want to continue to rebel against me? The nakedness, exposure, and same and parchedness is yours to come. You're going to reap what you sow. Passages like this are a challenge, a challenge to the American mind, but also the Christian mind in a lot of ways that is still developing and, and trying to become more biblical in our thinking. Because we think about the nature of mankind. And as we read this, God's going to strip her naked, naked if there's no repentance. God's going to do this. He says about her things in verse 5 that are uncomely of her. They're, 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 they're not flattering of her. He's even saying to her, because of your rebellion, I'm not going to have mercy on your children because they come from you, Israel. And so it seems like, especially if we were the, just to, to throw this out there to the world, God sure does seem mean to this woman, Israel. He sure does seem mean to the People that he said he had betrothed, that he said that he would love, that he said that he would be long-suffering with. God sure does seem mean to bring this kind of judgment. We think about this when, when the discussion rises up about God who would judge the nations. Or God who would judge, in the end of all things, right and wrong. Or God that would judge persons. We think, well, well if God loves everybody, I mean, just do this. I mean, God's supposed to just be merciful and kind and loving to everyone, and, and, and His justice, if justice were to come, then everybody should equally be rewarded. We're all just victims, after all, of the devil, if he exists. We're all just victims, after all, of everybody else's sin and vitriol. They've hurt me, and I've hurt others, because after all, hurt people hurt people. And the challenge to all of us when we read passages like this, even about God speaking about His own people, about Israel, when we, when we read passages like this, we have to be uh, thinking all of the Bible, but we also have to rethink and rewire how we understand justice and mercy. Theology by way of present-day sentiment, what feels right. You guys hear me talking about this regularly. Theology by way of what feels right. Modern sentiment. Okay, Think precious memories and, and Hallmark movies and just what, what makes you feel Theology by that way is a satanic way to do the theology. It's a satanic way. Satan wants you to follow the feeling of your gut of what feels right and wrong. And if it feels wrong that God would say this about anybody and about Israel in this moment, then, then the devil himself would want you to say, I, that doesn't, I don't like that. That doesn't sound right. That God should strip her naked and expose her in a wilderness and, and kill her with thirst. Withhold from her what she needs. The devil wants you to judge God by your own personal standards. That's what the enemy of your soul wants. That's what the flesh inside of you that's still unsanctified wants is to be the judge of God. 
But God does not abide by our made-up, man-made rules. We live in His world. He doesn't live in our world. We don't define His justice. He makes the rules. He judges the peoples with equity. And I think a fundamental problem, and, and I, I still see this, even by so many who claim to know the Lord, I'm so thankful what God is doing here in our midst. But for anybody that would think that mankind is, is good, generally good, and agreeable to helping people and, and have altruistic vibes from the inside out. And if we think that, then we're going to always look at the justice of God that's going to unfold even more here in a minute. We're always going to look at the justice of God and we're going to judge God for it. God, you shouldn't... That, people deserve better. If I was God, I wouldn't judge them in that manner. But if we know how evil mankind is, or if we can look at the judgments of God upon mankind, it gives us insight to what is fair and just. And if mankind deserves the judgment that's coming her way, or rebellious people in this world today, if they deserve that, what it shows us, it gives us insight into the depravity of mankind. If the justice that comes down from God to a person or to a nation is right and just, it tells us the nature of the rebellion, that it was really bad. Really bad. And we are in a lot of trouble apart from the mercy of God. Israel has earned judgment. And God has every right to expose sin and every right to let anybody self-destruct. God owes nothing to anyone. He owes nothing to anyone. And we see the sins of Israel, what God is talking about. We see how bad these sins were. Look at verse 5, the second part. And by the way, guys, in, a, in covering the whole chapter, we're going to cover all of chapter 2 today. And there's, some, there's things in here we're going to miss. We can't cover the whole chapter. And as we go through the book of Hosea, we're trying to cover theme by theme and, and sometimes chapter by chapter, or even sometimes like next week is only going to be five verses. But today we're going to miss some of the things in chapter 2 or skim over them a little bit faster than we normally would just because there's a lot to the story in Hosea chapter 2. So look at verse 5, the second half. And behold, the sins of Israel. For she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she will seek them, but she will not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it's better for me then than now. Israel, the metaphor, remember, is she is like Gomer. And as Gomer went from Man to man to man. Hosea is saying and demonstrating this through his pen. The Holy Spirit is giving us insight. This is what Israel is doing. They're running from lover to lover to lover. They're abandoning God and turning away from Him time and time again. I will go after. It's like Israel saying, I will go after whoever, whoever will give me what I want. She says in verse 7, verse 6, excuse me, or excuse me, verse 5, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and water, wool and flax and oil and my drink. There's a list of things that, that she wants and she's going to go to whoever will give that to her. And so she's going to chase and she's never going to be satisfied. In verse 6, we're told that God's going to confuse her wanderings. 
She's going to go out and chase whoever will give her the gifts that she wants. And she's going to go from one Canaanite god, Baal, to another Canaanite god. She's going to do all sorts of things that are going to violate, violate God's law, all in pursuit of, give me my flax. Give me my gifts. Whatever God will give me the things that I want, that's what I'm going to pursue. And so she's going to keep returning and, and, and rebelling against God, keep going against God. And she's not going to have any idea where she's going because God says that he's going to confuse her wonderings in verse 6. He's going to make her path crooked. So she's going to go and she's going to look for the things that she wants. And guys, we still this, like in the, the macro level, we still, micro level, we see this still everywhere. We see this everywhere of people chasing what they're wanting. They're chasing their desire and that desire is never satisfied. And one day they, they find a, a lover, they find somebody that's going to give them flax and they get the flax and they're like, the flax really doesn't do it for me anymore. I, I want grain. I want drink. Whatever it is, whatever, fill in the blank, whatever it is, they're going to get to what they want. And then when they get to what they want, they realize it's just not really what I want. There's still something else inside of me. And so God is going to make her paths crooked. And they're going to keep wandering and they're not going to find what they want. She's going to run around. And she's not going to apprehend what she desires. Finally, the Gomer, Israel, is going to return to her first husband. Gomer's going to return to Hosea. Israel's going to turn, return to God. And she's going to try to find the internal longings wherever she can. And finally, she's just going to kind of shrug her shoulders and she's going to say, well, we've tried things our own way. I guess we were better off back then. And she's going to say, okay, well, I'll go back. Not out of love, but just practicality. Well, it wasn't that great, so I'm going to go back, return to my first husband because it was better for me then than now. This isn't working, so I'll just go back. She didn't even know that in her times of wandering, even in her rebellion, even in the times of, of judgment from God, that God was still merciful to her, even in her judgment, even in her wanderings. Look at verse 8. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Israel didn't even know. When she got the, the flax, when she got the oil, when she got the grain given to her in the name of Baal, that was even God's mercy that He was shedding upon His people saying, here, you're, not even, you're, you're rebelling against Me and I'm still going to be kind to you. I'm still going to give you mercy. You know, we, we find out in the New Testament that God sends rain on the just and the unjust. Those who have curses coming out of their mouth. Those curses are coming out of their mouth with breath that's given to them by God. And God is gracious to them to give another breath and another breath and another breath. And He owes them nothing. Israel, all in the name of Baal, was receiving gifts from God and giving credit to Baal. And they kept running and kept running and tried to get what they wanted and couldn't get it. And they finally turned back. You see the patience of God. Even when people are running from God, God is patient. And He is kind to continue to provide. Even through judgment, God is kind. And His grace is seen everywhere. There's going to be a day of reckoning, though. There's going to be a day of reckoning. Look at verse 9. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time. And my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax. Which were to cover her nakedness. Now, I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one shall rescue her out of my hand i will put an end to all her mirth her feasts her new moons her sabbaths and all her appointed feasts and i will lay waste 
her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given to me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after other lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. There's going to be a day of reckoning. God will take it all back. He will expose rebellious Israel for what they are and who they are. And in verse 10, we're told, no one will be able to undo what I'm going to do. No one. Nobody has that power. In verse 11, God says, I'm going to end external religion within them and among them as they know it. I'm going to put an end to their feast, to their new moons. It's it's like he hates them. He says that in Amos. I'm going to put an end to this external false worship. Verse 12, all she's going to get from her lovers is to be devoured. Her lovers will eventually devour her. In verse 13, she will be punished for forgetting the Lord. God is just and Israel will get what they deserve. They'll get what they deserve. Um, It needs to be stated, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ here today, you're not ancient Israel. You're not currently living in the northern kingdom. And sometimes you can hear this and think, well, what does this have to do with me? How, How does this have any meaning for me today? And the theme is justice. And you may think, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good lady. You know, when, when you put yourself up against the standard of whoever it is that you would want to put yourself up against, the, the standard, whoever it is, you think, you know, I'm, I'm, I know I am better than whoever. I know the selflessness that I, I give away to my family or to my friends. And if you don't know the Lord... God's wrath still is upon you right now. And everything that's in your life, everything that's in your life, is because of His mercy. And if you do not get right with God, justice and judgment is coming. And you may think, well, well, Jared, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Are you kidding? God's wrath eternally in a place called hell? That doesn't seem to fit the crime. What, What are you talking about here? Well, that's because you don't think you're that bad and you don't think God's that holy. The punishment does fit the crime. You are in so much trouble. You need to get right with God today, this very moment. Bend your head, bow your knee, repent and get right with God before you leave today because tomorrow is not promised to you. And when you hear of the justice of God and promises of His judgment to come, today is the day of salvation. Do not walk away. Now listen, the the church gathering, this is for believers. Okay, this is for believers. The church is not for non-believers. But the, there's non-believers that come and attend or are a part of it. And if you're a part of the, of the people today, the majority here are the church, the people of God, who love God, who have been redeemed by God and had their sins forgiven. But if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, newsflash, you could die today. And you may think, yeah, probably not. You know, statistically, and the probability of that is most likely you're going to go home, you'll watch your football, you'll do whatever you can, or you'll still... Uh, Boycotting football like me, I'm I'm not going to watch football. Um, You may take your stands on on good and proper moral issues, but if you don't know the Lord, (laughs) eternity is out there, folks. And we're hearing about God's judgment to ancient Israel, but it reminds us of God's judgment that's a very present reality, and it's upon you. His wrath is upon you. 
And the only way His wrath is not going to be upon you is to turn to Jesus and see what He did on the cross. See what He has done for sinners. That He lived the perfect life. That He died a sacrificial, substitutionary death. And He absorbed the very wrath of God for real people. And you can turn to Him, repent of your sins, believe in that work, and live today by God's grace. Judgment. Israel will get what she deserves. And so will you. And yet verse 15, 14 and 15 tell us about God's grace. We make a turn here in this passage today and we're going to see the justice of God. We're going to see the love of God. Look at verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and I will make the valley of Angkor a day, a door of hope. And there shall be an answer as in the day of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Hosea has this back and forth through the whole book. It, judgment and promise together. And if you don't see what's going on, if you don't see that just judgment and promise, if you don't see that true people of God and just the ethnic bloodline of the Jews, there's a difference, then it can be rather confusing. But when you see them back to back like this, you see the love of God and the justice of God back to back like this, it always should help you and help us from our vantage point think about where that's seen more clearly, justice and love. And that's going to bring us to the cross here in a minute. But on the back side, with that, the justice of God as the backdrop, we get grace. I will allure her. Where's all this stripping her naked business now? I'll bring her into the wilderness. Wait a minute. I thought you were going to make her a parched land. Now you're going to talk tenderly to her. And give her vineyards rather than the vineyards being desolate. And in the valley of Angkor, the valley of trouble, there's going to be a door of hope. And there's going to be an answer. Grace, even through, even though judgment is coming, grace has always been on the scene. And where you find judgment, if you look, you'll always see God's grace. You'll always see His mercy. God is going to do something for this rebellious woman. Now notice the rest of the chapter is going to be God saying what He is going to do. We've seen what the northern kingdom have done. We've seen that that's representative, not just of the northern kingdom of Israel, but if we take it and personalize it, it's representative to all humanity everywhere, each and every. We've seen the merit, the score of humanity, the scorecard, and it's one that deserves judgment. And now we're going to see what God does. What does God do? Well, He's going to allure her, speak tenderly to her. He's going to give her gifts and He's going to make the valley of trouble, which is Angkor, Jezreel, a valley of hope. And we're going to see exactly what God's going to do in verse 16 through 20. Look at this. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. Now, keep in mind, in that day, in that day, what is this? It's a future day. And you've got to be thinking, what is He talking about in that day? When's that day going to be? Is it just in ancient Israel, or is it, where is that day? And we're going to piece together what that day is through these four verses. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by, by name no more. 
And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfastness and in love. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. What's God going to do? And that day is future. It's a future day. It's a day of anticipation. It's another insight, another passage of hope. And that day is speaking about the coming of Christ. The first advent. The new covenant. This is future. What is going to be done in Christ? We're going to even see that more in verses 21 through 23. What is going to be done in Christ? Now, we're first told that the true Israel will no longer worship False gods. Verse 17, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. She's not going to say anymore, my Baal is my husband, but no, God, Yahweh, is my husband. God will remove the Baals from amongst them. Sinners cannot stop worshiping God, but God says He's going to do something for the Israel that continues to worship false gods. God's going to do something. He is going to, not Israel, Israel's not going to do this. They are not going to remove the Baals, but God is going to rip Baal up out of there, even out of their hearts, and do business with Baal. Crush Baal. There is no other God but the one true God. He will remove Baal. In verse 18, he will even make a covenant, it says, with the animal kingdom. And I think this is speaking to the thing that Christ accomplished that's continuing to be unfolded in the world as we see it, that restoration is coming and the lion will lay down with the lamb and we'll see it. Things will be as they were intended to be in the Garden of Eden. War is going to one day be ended because of what God will do in that day. And that indeed was purchased by the blood of Jesus. He purchased restoration for all things. And the redemption of sinners. He purchased sinners. In verse 19, we're told that God will betroth His people to Himself in righteousness and justice, steadfastness, love, and mercy. In verse 20 it says, Again, I will betroth you to Me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Look at verse 19 and 20 one more time. I will betroth you to Me forever. Now, last week I mentioned this. Men... Please hear me on this. The the Bible does not apologize at all for calling you and calling me the bride of Christ. And that might seem weird, but the Bible doesn't apologize for that at all. And we need to see the glory of it. That God, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. This is last week I referenced this, this as well. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice. And for all those that care about righteousness and justice, can I get a yes and amen, please, in a, in a world of madness right now? Amen. In a world of madness, so people running around saying that's right and that's wrong, and you're wondering, why do you think that's right and why do you think that's wrong? And people making moral judgments everywhere based on what they think inside of them. I mean, it's sheer insanity everywhere. And for all those who cry out righteousness and justice, please, God says that He's going to betroth us to Him in righteousness and justice, steadfast love and mercy. Verse 20, betroth you to me in faithfulness. That word faithfulness is interesting because we continue to see Israel's unfaithfulness over and over again. Unfaithful bride, unfaithful bride, unfaithful bride. 
just like Gomer, unfaithful bride, unfaithful bride to Gomer, to Hosea, time and time again. Israel's just like Gomer. But now, God's going to betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus came in that day to do what Hosea is talking about. Jesus came and He lived the life that Israel should have lived. He obeyed His heavenly Father. The promises of Hosea find their fulfillment in Christ. You and I in this room today, our evidence is we are the fulfillment of the prophetic word we're looking at today. We are a part of what Hosea was talking about all those years ago, 2,700 years ago. We are a part of those that are betrothed to God. Jesus came to rescue his bride. This is the foundation of all love from a husband to a wife. It's un... un um, what, what does it mean when you, when you love somebody without condition? Unconditional. It's unconditional and it's particular. Jesus came to love his bride. God loves the world, but not the way that he loves his bride. Hey guys, we, okay, we got that in video, James says. All right. And this is just so crucial. God, God's love is not the same for everyone. It's not. He loves everyone, but not the same. Just like husbands are not to love all wives and all women the same. Like a man is not to love every woman the exact same way. He's to love his wife uniquely and particularly. Um, you love your children differently than you love other people's children. And you can love kids. And, you know, I've joked before that some people love their kids, and that's the only kids they love. Everybody else's kids is just like, keep it arm's length, please. But the love that Jesus is coming and the work that Jesus is coming to do is particular. It's specific. He loves his bride. Men are to love our wives in that way. Specially. Special love. Unique love. Differently than we love any other woman. You and I are fulfillment of this word. 
We are the ones who have been purchased. We are the ones that Jesus is cleaning up. We are the ones that he is making holy and without blemish. We have been imputed with his righteousness. He has given us his very life. God sees his life. But then as he has imputed righteousness to us, he is also now changing us from the inside out and and doing inside of us what he has already done for us. He is making us actually holy. And so you and I are in this process called sanctification. Jesus is continuing to be committed to us, to clean us up, and to make us the faithful bride. He is changing us into His very image. And there's going to be a day that you actually, because of the work of Christ, what's imputed to you, the righteousness of Christ, credit to you, will actually be the reality of your person. You will be holy and you will be Christ-like. He will have completely beautified you and made you when you are resurrected, when He returns, not in this lifetime. We'll have indwelling sin in our lifetime forever. But until eternity, we're continuing to walk that path of being changed into the faithful bride every single day, day in and day out. And then one day, it will be made complete. And this is so great because one day in our physical bodies, we will experience perfect faithfulness to the King. The sins that you deal with right now in this world, you won't deal with anymore. The struggles and the sins. There's a day out there. There's a day that you won't deal with those sins anymore. And Ephesians 5 is perfect. It perfectly encapsulates what Hosea is talking about all those years before. That there will be a bride betrothed to God in faithfulness. And friends, that's you and me. That's Jew and Gentile alike. And it's not simply the Israel by name only. I said it last week. I'll say it again this week. Those who are ethnic Jews have no hope of heaven simply because they're an ethnic Jew. They have to bow their knee to Jesus and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's going to have mercy in that day. Look at verse 21. Flip back and we'll look at verse 21 through 23. He will have mercy. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will, have, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. To those that I had said, you're not my people, there's going to be a day I'm going to say, my people. And those who had been worshiping the Baals, those who had walked away, there's going to be a remnant there. There's going to be a, a, a one there that's betrothed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they're betrothed to the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to say, you are my God. There's no Baal worship here. The name of Baal has been removed from us. There's no idol worship to be tolerated here. Because God is removing the worship of other, other gods, false gods, many gods, little gods, whoever they may be, removing them from our midst. And we're declaring, and we do right now with the church around the world, God is our God. Jesus is the King of kings, and Jesus is the Lord of lords, and we follow Him. He will have mercy. So how can these two things be true? In the same chapter, we see God's justice, and we see His mercy. We see His wrath, we see His love. How in the world could God make all of this be a reality? How can there be prophetic utterances of judgment and then also of mercy? I will have no mercy on the one I will have mercy on the one I called no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. H- how can God do this? And that brings us to the cross of Jesus Christ. 
The cross of Christ, we see justice and love. We just see justice and love in full focus. The, the clearest demonstration of the wrath of God is not the book of Joshua, which we're reading through right now in the Bible reading challenge. That's not the clearest evidence of God's wrath in the Bible. The cross of Christ is. That's the clearest picture of justice. And that's why answers to so-called social justice in the world that are crossless answers are no answers at all. The cross of Christ is where we find justice. And it's where we find the love of God. It's the clearest picture of the love of God as well. You can travel land and sea to find demonstrations of love. You can hear folklore and mythology and hear stories of sacrifice and bravery of somebody giving their life. You can hear stories of romantic love, of Romeo and Juliet. You can find stories anywhere and everywhere that warm the heart. But you cannot find a love like this. This is the clearest demonstration of love. And you can find no just wrath like this either. And it's all because of the life and the death of Jesus Christ, which was substitutionary. Jesus lived the life that sinners should have lived. The law of God is so good. The law of God is so good. It's like, it's like honey to the mouth. The law of God is good. The commandments of God are good. And every human being has taken the commandments of God, every single one of us, taken the commandments of God, wadded them up, thrown them over our shoulder, and went to live our, our way, the way we wanted to live. We've said terrible things about the law of God. We falsely said God's grace is good and God's love is mean and awful. God's law is mean and awful. And yet His law is good, and what people have done is they've come and said, nah, Law of God's mean. Old Testament God. Forget that. And yet Jesus came and honored His heavenly Father's word. And He, obe he obeyed. He hung on every single word. He obeyed His heavenly Father. He fulfilled the law of God. And on the Passover night, when there was to be a sacrificial lamb whose blood was to be spilled in the Holy of Holies, Jesus Christ the spotless lamb, the warrior king, the strongest man and the meekest man who ever walked the face of this earth, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, lived his life perfectly and went to die the death that sinners deserve to die. He died in the place of real people. My, that's what my life has merited, the cross. My life, what I've earned by my actions and my thoughts and my deeds and the work of my hands, I have earned the wrath of God. And Jesus came to die in my place. And He absorbed the wrath of God. And He took it. He died the death that I deserve to die. And God punished His people. Real justice. Israel didn't get away with it. Sinners don't get away with it. I didn't get away with it. My sin, me, really has been punished on that tree because Jesus was punished in my place. Jesus took the wrath that was coming to His true people, to the real Israel. Jesus was counted as a sinner. Jesus died in the place of people. And if you know Christ, that means He died in your place. And that's why you know Christ. God punished you for your sins in Jesus. And because of that, you have received mercy. 
The cross answers all these contrasting passages through the whole Bible about his wrath and his love. How can these things be true about God together? And we look to Jesus and we find our answer. It just all comes together. We see it in color. We see now from our vantage point what they couldn't see, how God can make all these things to be true at the same time. God was merciful and he was just. Because of what Christ has done, we have received mercy. The people of God get to look back in thankfulness. And we get our theme that we're going to be celebrating all week long. And we get to live that theme out every single day of the year. We get the rewards that Jesus earned in His life, death, and resurrection. We get counted faithful. We get counted as righteous. We get counted as the obedient ones. Because God has been merciful to us in Christ Jesus. They looked ahead. We look back. What a day we live in. Uh, four or five years ago, I said this for the first time. If I came in here with a briefcase, and you came in here downtrodden, we'll use an old school word, downtrodden, and that briefcase was $1 billion, because inflation, $1 million, what's the big deal about $1 million anymore, right? So $1 billion, I give, give George. George comes in, he's just, man, he's down in the dump. So I give you a $1 billion. You just walk to the car, and you're like, oh, it's kind of a heavy briefcase. I hope it's not full of dirty socks and a, you know, a bunch of rocks. And you open it up, and you see just piles and piles and piles. And by the way, George, I've got like 50 more of those briefcases inside of him because the news is going to be so good. No matter what the bad news was he came walking in here with, he's going to be overwhelmed with joy because he just got a billion dollars, right? I mean, who's going to, I mean, hunting cabin, right? <laughs> billion dollars? Billion dollars? Oh my gosh. Whatever you walked in with, hanging your head about, like, man, I get that there's some things that are so dark and so low that a billion dollars wouldn't even pull you out of that pit. I get that. But here's the point. God has been merciful to you, a sinner. And you have every single day the best news in the world, the greatest news in the world to be thankful for. They looked ahead. We look back and see what God was talking about. And he was talking about what Christ did for sinners 2,000 years ago. Let's pray.